0: Today, though, we are covering, again, another kind of massive uh, portion of Scripture because this is all one story. The title of the message is Standing on the Promises of God, and we're going to see how in Paul's life, how God's promises, when we stand on them, really are the, the crux for changing everything in our lives. So let's pray, and we'll dive into this. Lord, we love you, and we thank you so much for your word, the promises that we were just singing about, that they are yes and amen. And Lord, I pray today that you would um, just speak to us and teach us and, and help us to see, Lord, just how amazing your promises are. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we have seen in our study in the book of Acts that Paul, we've been looking at his life uh, in this second half, how Paul was desperately wanting to get to Jerusalem. He had on his heart to share the gospel with his Jewish brothers and sisters, and he finally arrives. But as soon as he gets there, things start to go south because there are these uh, Jewish guys that come from Asia, and they are accusing Paul of profaning the temple, of bringing Gentiles into the temple. And so this riot ensues, and there's, there's this people, they're out for blood. They're out for Paul's blood, literally. And this Roman commander comes in and rescues him, and he pulls him from this mob but then Paul asks if he can speak to the mob this this crowd that wants to kill him and he's given permission and he starts to share his testimony he starts to talk about how he understands where they're at because he was a Pharisee and he wanted to destroy all the followers of Jesus but that all changed when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus and he realized when he met Jesus that he was risen from the dead that he really was the Messiah and these people are listening to him. They're like mesmerized. These people that just wanted to kill Paul, they're mesmerized by his story until he says, and Jesus has chosen me to go and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And when they hear Gentiles, because their hatred of the Gentiles was so great, they just break up into this horrendous, you know, outpour again, and they want to kill Paul. And so the Roman commander rescues him again. He finds out that Paul is a Roman citizen, which means he is, uh, he gets due process. He is Um, he should get due process, and so he arranges for Paul to have an audience with the Jewish Sanhedrin. This is the ruling council of 70 elders, and this is where we pick up the story in chapter 22, verse 30, and we read this, the next day. Everybody say, "The the next day. Because he wanted to know for certain why Paul was accused by the Jews this is the commander, he released him from his bonds and commanded that the chief priests and their council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. Pause there and give me your attention. So here we see the next day, it's the next day, but Paul has the same problem. These Jewish leaders want him dead, You know, there are certain sayings in our culture that you just don't want to hear when you're having a bad day, right? Like, for instance, better luck next time. That just doesn't help, does it, right? Or or this one, hey, tomorrow's a new day. Yeah, that's true, but I'm waking up tomorrow with the same problems, right? Right? I actually lived through this 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 past week and a half. It, it started on January 24th. In the afternoon, we discovered that our water heater the, had broke, that the pilot light went out. I couldn't get it relit. We have no hot water, and my wife's sister is coming for a visit on Saturday, so I have to get this thing fix now i have one of those waters that on the gas control valve on the front it has these lights if it's flashing blue that means everything's great but if it's flashing red it means there's something wrong and there is a criteria if it flashes you know twice red it means this if it flashes nine times red it means something else well mine was flashing twice which meant that the thermal pile voltage something was wrong and i have no idea what that is but my water heater is under warranty. So I call Ream, and I just have to say, they have horrible customer service. <laughs> I wait on hold for 30 minutes, and they have lousy music, okay? Finally, somebody answers. And they're like, oh, you need to talk to somebody in this department. So they transfer me, and I wait another 25 minutes on hold, more lousy music. And so 55 minutes have gone by, and finally I talk to a person who tells me that, yes, my water heater is under warranty. And that part will be covered, but I have to get a licensed technician to come and verify that that is the problem i 'm like but the the control the you know, panel the, on the you know it 's flashing in conjunction with what it says that it 's this is the problem, this is the way you design this thing, yes, I know, but you have to get somebody to come out so by now it's four o'clock in the afternoon. I call ten plumbers and finally get one that can work on water heaters. And he says I can't come out till tomorrow morning. And I'm like, okay, great. You know, we'll go shower at my mom's house tonight. And um, so he shows up the next morning and and he takes his little you know uh, voltage meter thing and hooks it up and and five minutes you know he's there five minutes. He goes, yep, that's that's the problem. It's your thermal coupling, and you know you need that replaced and and. Uh, that'll be $85. And and I'm like, really? And then he tells me, he tells me that, that he can fix it. You know, it's great. It's under warranty and I can fix it when the part comes, but it'll cost you $200. The labor's not under warranty, just the parts. And he says, or I can, you know, put in a whole new water heater for you for $1,600. And so my, my new day is turning into a nightmare. All right. So the next morning, I call Reem. I'm on hold for another 40 minutes, more lousy music. I order the parts, and they tell me, well, we actually don't have the part. So we're going to send you a whole new burner assembly. And I'm thinking, okay, that's great. I find out that's like a $450 part, and they're giving it to me for free, but they tell me, but, you know, and I paid to expedite. I paid $30 to get it expedited because my st- Sister-in-law's coming on Saturday, this is Friday, and they say, it might get there on Saturday, but probably not till Monday. Well, sure enough, it doesn't come till Monday. So last Sunday at 6.30 in the morning, I'm sneaking into my mom's house to not wake her up so I can shower before church, and um, so Monday morning, it shows up. And Monday, my usual routine is I'm studying, getting ready for next Sunday, and I study in the morning for Sunday morning, afternoon for Wednesday night. So that's my routine. I'm at home in my office at home. It shows up at 11:20. I have a phone appointment with a pastor in Michigan uh, that needs some help about something. At noon, I'm thinking I can do this because I watched YouTube, and. uh, So I'm thinking, no problem, man. I can install this burner assembly. It should only take about 20 minutes. In fact, on Sunday, the day before, I pulled out the other one, the old one. But when I, when I, when the new one comes, I open up the box and it doesn't look like the old one. In fact, there's, the pilot light is in a whole different place. So I'm thinking, okay, I better make sure they sent me the right part. But I'm not calling Reem; I don't have time for that. So I'm, I'm you know, going on YouTube, and I'm, I'm researching. I find out it is the right part number, so it must just be a new model. So I install it. I push the button. I push the pilot light. Ignition! It's lit! Yes! Thank you! Praise Jesus! I wait there about a minute. I go to turn the knob to, to hot, and the pilot light goes out. This happens like three or four more times. So I'm thinking I must have done something wrong. So I pull it all back out again. I check all the wiring. I reinstall it again. Same thing happens again. So I call one of my buddies, and I said, hey, you know, he's smarter than me on this kind of thing. I said, you know, this is what's happening. And, and he says, you know, I don't know. I'll call one of my plumber friends. And, and, you know, so I'm researching. My pilot light won't go. You know, it keeps going out. And, you know, my buddy asked me, are you sure you did it right? And I'm like, yes, I did it twice. I did it right. And um, his friend says, well, you probably got a defective new part, the plumber. So Now, I got to tell you this. When I told Denise I was going to do this, I'm going to save us $200. She's like, "Are you sure you can do this?" And I'm like, "Yes. It's easy. I watched the video on YouTube, you know." Well, now it's Monday morning and Denise is gone. And I got to get this done before she gets there. My manhood's at stake now, you know? <laughs> well, I go through all of this. I'm like, this, this can't be the problem. I mean, I can't get this fixed. Something is wrong with the, the problem. And again, my, my new day... It's Monday now. We've gone like four days without hot water. It's turning into another nightmare. But now it's too late to call Rheem because it's like four o'clock. They are two hours ahead. They're closed. So Denise comes home with our grandson who's spending the night, who desperately needs a bath. She's disappointed. I'm frustrated. It's back to my mom's for showers and baths. And I decide tomorrow is going to be a new day. Seven o'clock in the morning, I'm on the phone with Reem because they're, you know, it's nine. I'm right when, they wait, right when they open. I only have to wait 15 minutes. I've talked to this lady. She actually seems to know what she's talking about. I tell her everything that happened, and she goes, Oh, it's your gas control valve. That's the problem. You need a new one of those. I'm going to send you a new one, I'm going to expedite it. It'll be there by tomorrow. And I'm like, Okay tell denise one more day watch another youtube video (laughs) it comes the next day i install it on wednesday almost a week later we have hot water and uh... (laughs) but here's my point (laughs) don't tell me tomorrow's a new day when i'm waking up to the same problems all right not unless you can make a promise that my problem will be taken care of and a lot of you are going through that right now you wake up the next day with the same problems well for paul it was the next day but same problems He's got a group of Jewish people that want to kill him and now he's before the Sanhedrin that that actually have the power to make that happen because this ruling group of 70 elders have been given the power by Rome to sentence somebody to death if they have profaned the temple or profaned their religion and that is the accusation against Paul. And catch this, remember in Acts chapter 7, Paul was actually a part of this group. He was a part of the Sanhedrin and he was a part of the group that consented to the death of Stephen when we see, saw there in Acts 7, Stephen being stoned. Well, now over 20 years have passed and Paul is on the hot seat and the only thing that is saving him right now is his Roman citizenship. That he has told this commander that he's a Roman citizen because he was born in Tarsus, which is in the province of Uh, Cilicia which made him a Roman citizen by birth and so this Roman commander is going to assure that Paul gets a fair trial but in the midst of this whole ordeal things are going from bad to worst but we'll see in our text today that Jesus is going to make a promise to Paul and it's this promise that Jesus makes that changes everything it's a promise that is going to carry Paul all the way to Rome. It's going to carry him through this whole court, all these court hearings. It's going to carry him through death threats. It's going to carry him through a shipwreck and a snake bite. But because of this promise, and this is what I want you to catch, Paul is going to move with confidence and hope through the remainder of the book of Acts. This is a moment that changes everything, and we're going to keep pointing back to it as we go through Paul's story. And so the application for us today is this. Jesus makes promises to us that are meant to carry us through any difficulty that we might face. And so these are the four things we're going to see today as we look at Paul's story. Is Number one, God's promises are greater than the schemes of the enemy. Number two, when we are standing on the promises of God, God will make a way where there is no way. Number three, when we're standing on the promises of God, we can fulfill our mission and purpose with confidence. But then we're going to see at the very end of this how when we're standing on the promises of God, there can actually be a delay in the promises coming to fulfillment. So let's pick it up. Chapter 23, verse 1. Paul is before the Sanhedrin. It says, then Paul looking earnestly at the council said, men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Now, this is really interesting that Paul would make this statement. I've lived in all good conscience because Paul, when he was a Pharisee, wanted to persecute the followers of Jesus, the followers, they called it, of the way. And he even had Christians not only arrested, but sentenced to death. So, so how could Paul make that statement? I've lived before God with a pure conscience. Well, Paul knew that this truth that we read about in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, that it tells us that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses our conscience from all dead works so that we can serve the living God. And Paul knew that no matter what he had done, he had been cleansed. He had been made new by Jesus, that his conscience had been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And now he was trying to live for Jesus and follow Jesus with all of his heart. And it's beautiful, isn't it, to know that our conscience has been made clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean we don't sin anymore, but the Bible also says that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us when we sin, that if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In fact, remember, we're going to have communion today. Remember the cross? Remember at the cross when Jesus was hanging on the cross that the, the two thieves on both sides of him, because it was the Sabbath, they wanted to speed up the process, the, the dying process. So they broke the legs of those two thieves because what happens on the cross is you die of suffocation and you push yourself up to get a breath and then you finally come to a place where you just can't push up anymore well they break the legs and that speeds up the whole process because you can't push so you end up dying of suffocation they come to jesus and they're going to break his legs but his leg he's already dead He's already been past, so they don't break his legs, which fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah said not a bone of his would be broken. Why is that significant? This is symbolic because we know that blood is produced in the bone marrow of the body. So by not having his bones, any of his bones broken, it's symbolic way of God speaking to us that there would always be a perpetual flow of blood available to cleanse us from our sins. So Paul says, I've lived before God with a pure conscience. Well, the high priest doesn't like that answer. Look at verse two. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. For you sit to judge me according to the law and you command me to be struck contrary to the law. I mean, you're not, you're, how can you, you're not following the law right now. So he calls them a whitewashed wall. A whitewashed wall was a tombstone, a grave marker. Jesus said the same thing about the religious leaders. He said, you guys are whitewashed tombs, but you're full of dead men's bones. And he said, in other words, you look great on the outside, but you're dead on the inside. You go to a cemetery today and you walk around the cemetery and you see there in the ground all these grave markers and some of them are are made of beautiful stone, others of marble, beautiful on the outside, but underneath is something that is dead. So in essence, what Paul was saying is you're being a hypocrite right now. And verse four says, and those who stood by said, do you revile God's high priest? And then Paul said, well, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. Paul's like, well, he's not acting like the high priest. You know, I didn't know it was the high priest. Now, here's what's interesting. When Jesus was alive, he told his disciples to not be afraid when they would go before uh, rulers and 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 you know be on trial, because he, he told him two things: he says, "I want you to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves." And know this, the Holy Spirit is going to give you what you need to speak. So wise as serpents, to be shrewd and cunning, to be harmless as doves, to be respectful. And we see all of this playing out in the way Paul deals with this whole situation. We see his cunningness there in verse 6. It says, but when Paul perceived that part were Sadducees and the others were Pharisees, He cried out to the council, men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, son of a Pharisee, concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided, for the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. So the Sanhedrin, picture this, they're divided theologically. The Sadducees don't believe in miracles. They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in the resurrection. That's why they are sad, you see, um, <laughs> is they don't believe in any of those things. The Pharisees, on the other hand, believe in all of them. They believe that, that you know there is a resurrection. And so Paul says, I believe in the hope of the resurrection. And suddenly this group is in an uproar again. And it's not like the Pharisees really liked Paul. They saw him as as someone who deserted from their ranks to follow Jesus. But they're not about to concede to the Sadducees theologically. We pick it up in verse 9. So then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes uh, and the, uh, the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, we find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken him, let us not fight against God. Now, when those there arose a great dissension, and the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, this is the like all the pastors, okay, this is the ruling group, right? They're acting like maniacs, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks here's our key verse verse 11 but the following night the lord stood by him stood by paul and said be of good cheer other translations put it take courage paul take courage why would the lord say that to paul probably because he was discouraged We see in the Bible where God shows up in a situation and says, don't be afraid. And he says that because everybody's freaking out. He says to Paul, take courage. Because Paul was probably discouraged. Paul's probably beating himself up right now. He's in the barracks. He's been wanting to to preach to the, the Jewish people there in Jerusalem, and he gets his chance. He's probably thinking, why did I have to bring up the Gentiles He's probably beating himself. Why? Why did I call the high priest a whitewashed tomb? Why did I do that? And then Jesus shows up. Be of good cheer. Take courage. Paul, don't be discouraged. For notice what he says. For as you have testified for me in Jerusalem. Do you catch that? Jesus is commending. He's, this is a word of commendation. Paul, you did what I told you to You didn't blow it. You did what I wanted you to do. You testified for me in Jerusalem. Jesus isn't joining Paul in his why questions. He's not like, yeah, Paul, why did you have to bring up the Gentiles? Why did you call the high priest a whitewash? wall? Jesus doesn't do any of that. He's saying, Paul, you did your job. You testified of me. I'm proud of you. And guys, listen, we must learn the difference between the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the condemnation of the enemy. Because the Bible says that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In other words, Jesus isn't accusing you. That's Satan's job. He's called the accuser of the brethren. That's what he does. And the voice of condemnation is always that voice that seeks to push you away from God. To say things like, you blew it too bad this time. God's never going to forgive you. Just give it up. He's never going to receive you back that's the voice of the enemy that voice of condemnation but that voice of conviction is one where the holy spirit will say to us yeah rob you blew it and you need to repent of that you need to confess that i want to forgive you and i want you to come back into fellowship and relationship with me the voice of condemnation is always pushing you away the voice of conviction is always pulling you near Jesus doesn't condemn Paul here. He commends him. He says, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, Paul, you've done your job. And look at the next part. That commendation is followed by this promise. So you must also bear witness at Rome. Paul, be of good cheer, cheer. You're going to rome now paul had this burning desire inside of him to go to rome and preach the gospel and jesus is saying hey you're going to rome on an all-expense-paid trip by the roman government i've got you covered paul You're going to go and testify of me. And this is the only assurance that Paul needs. His whole mindset changes. For the rest of the story, he is seen moving with an assurance and a confidence that that Jesus said, I'm going to Rome. I'm going to make it to Rome. And I want you to listen, church. The Lord has made many, many promises to us who are his followers. In fact, Paul wrote about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, where he said, For every one of God's promises is yes in him. That means yes in Jesus. And the word yes means that it's certain. It means you can bank on it. It's like when God makes a promise, he's depositing his heart, his promise into your hearts. And then when you're in a time of need, you can withdraw that. You can stand on that. He says, all the promises of God are yes in Jesus. Therefore, through him, we also say amen to the glory of God. And Paul is going to stand on this promise from Jesus that he is going to Rome and everything else is going to change from here on out. Now, we're going to quickly move through the rest of this part of Paul's story and see how this promise of Jesus gives Paul great confidence. And the first thing that we want to see, number one, our first point, is that the promises of God are greater than the schemes of the enemy. We'll pick it up in verse 12. And when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now, there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy, and they came to the chief priests and elders, so now they're in cahoots with the leaders, and said, we have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Now, you, therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him, but we are ready to kill him before he comes. Comes near. So here's this plot. These 40 guys are lying in wait. They want to kill Paul, but watch what God does. Verse 16. So when Paul's sister's son, so this would be his nephew, heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Now we're not sure how this guy, this young guy, heard about this. Maybe his dad was a part of the Sanhedrin and that's how he heard about it. We're not sure, but notice what it says. Verse 17. Then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, take this young man to the commander for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you that he has something to say to you. Then the commander took him by the hand and went aside and asked privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire more fully about him but do not yield to them for more than 40 of them lie in wait for him men who have bound themselves by oath and they will neither eat nor drink until they have killed him and now they are ready waiting for the promise from you so the commander let the young man depart and commanded him tell no one what you have that you've revealed these things to me Verse 23, and he called for two centurions saying, prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night and provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. Now this is amazing. This commander puts together an escort for a king. 470 roman soldiers are going to escort paul to caesarea where the governor felix that's where he resides and i gotta tell you i I just love this i mean imagine those 40 mercenaries that they're lying in wait and they're waiting for this small little group and they suddenly start hearing these horses and it's like there's a lot more of them than we thought there's like 470 it's like an army And God just squashes this whole thing. You know, the Bible is full of God moving in supernatural ways to save his people. Like that time when he sent one angel that destroyed 185,000 of the Assyrian troops that were besieging Samaria. Or the time that he spends, sends, you know, takes 300 to, to conquer with Gideon an army that numbered in the tens of thousands. God is great at moving in supernatural ways, but here we see him moving supernaturally through natural means taking these, this Roman commander who's like, I'm not letting, this guy's a Roman citizen, I'm not letting him die, I'm gonna put together, I mean, it's like overboard, 470 troops that are gonna escort him. Do you think this filled Paul with more confidence? Watching this and seeing this, how, how God was putting this together? Well, we learn from this, guys, that the promises that God has made for us are greater than the schemes that the enemy tries to bring against us. Well, some of you might say, well, what about the martyrs? I mean, every day in this world, there are people that believe in Jesus who die for their faith. What what about them? Where are God's promises? Where, Where was Jesus when that happened? Listen, he was right there. He was right there. In the same way he was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they wouldn't bow to Nebuchadnezzar's statue, and he's going to throw them into the fiery furnace. Remember what they said, our God is going to deliver deliver us one way or another. He's either going to take us to heaven, or he's going to deliver us from the fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar throws them in, and he goes up to his little viewing window to see. He's waiting to see them become crispy critters, and instead they're ropes are burned off but they're not burning up they're like walking around like they're in a sauna and instead of three of them there's a fourth and the fourth he says looks like the son of god where was jesus right there with them in the fire and here's what we need to understand the bible says that god knows the number of our days and what that means is we don't have to live in fear that doesn't mean we live recklessly and do stupid things, but we don't have to live in fear because when, when we face opposition, because we can rest on, hey, God knows, I, God knows when He's going to bring me home. So, We see here, the first thing, God's promises are greater than the schemes of the enemy. The second thing we see is that when we're standing on the promises of God, God will make a way where there is no way. Let's pick it up in verse 25. Then he, the Roman commander, wrote a letter in the following manner. From Claudius Lysias to the most excellent Governor Felix, greetings. And in his letter, he's going to tell everything that happened to Paul And how Paul is a Roman citizen, and how, you know, in in my estimation, he says there's nothing he's done that is worthy of chains or of death, and he sends this letter with his troops and with Paul to the governor. We're going to pick it up in verse 34. And when the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from, and when he understood that he was from Cilicia, he's talking to Paul here. He said, I will hear you when your accusers also have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. Now, this is amazing because if you've been to Israel with us, you know there in Caesarea, Herod built a palace. This is the, his praetorium, the palace, right on the beach. This is where Paul gets to stay. Like he's in the palace. On the beach. You know, he's got this incredible view. And and we see here that Paul's first step toward Rome is going to be an audience with the governor. And why is that significant? Well, if you've been with us, you know back in Acts chapter 9, the Lord told Paul, You are my chosen vessel to speak and testify of me to the Jews. We've seen Paul do that. To the Gentiles, we've seen Paul do that. And to kings and rulers. We haven't seen Paul do that yet. But this is the time. God, 20 years later, is orchestrating. Paul's going to get an audience now with the governor... And he's going to testify before it's all said and done, before two governors and a king, and then the emperor Nero himself. So the governor, Felix, is, is ruling in this beautiful coastal city. We pick it up in verse, chapter 24, verse 1. It says, now, after five days, Ananias, the high priest, came down with the elders and a certain orator, Tertullus. Now, Tertullus is kind of like their lawyer. They've hired somebody who is a great orator, who can... And lay this whole thing out in a really, really great way. And so he goes through and tells you know why they want to try Paul. Paul profaned the temple. He brought in you know all these these Gentiles into the temple, and and you know this riot ensued that he was a part of. And we're going to pick it up in verse six. It says, and he even tried to profane the temple, and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. But the commander, Lysias, came by with a great violence and took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come to you. By examining him yourself, you may ascertain that all of these things of which we accuse him, and the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so." Now, Felix is going to give, this governor is going to give Paul an opportunity to respond. And here's our third point. When standing on the promises of God, we can fulfill our mission and purpose with confidence. And by now, Paul's probably remembering, oh, Jesus said I was going to speak to rulers. Here's my opportunity. Verse 10. Then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered, Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation... I do the more cheerfully answer for myself because you may ascertain that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. He's like, I've only been here for 12 days and they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone nor inciting the crowd either in the synagogues or in the city nor can they prove the things of which they accuse me. It's like, there's no proof. I haven't profaned the temple. I didn't incite a riot. I didn't do any of these things. But then he says, but I'm going to tell you what the real issue is. Verse 14. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sects, So I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets, and I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection from the dead, both of the just and the unjust. Verse 16, this being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Now, after many years, I came up to bring alms and offerings to my nation. And in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with a mob nor tumult, they ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me. Or else let those who are here themselves say if they have found any wrongdoing in me, While I stood before the council, unless it is for this one statement which I cried out standing among them concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. So here we see Paul standing on the promise that, that Jesus made him. Paul, just as you testified to me in Rome, you are going to test, should be in Jerusalem, you are going to testify for me in Rome. Paul's standing on this, and so he speaks with a great confidence in front of this governor. This is why I'm here. What happens next is fascinating. Look at verse 22. When Felix heard these things, having a more accurate knowledge of the way, so he's heard about Jesus, he adjourned the proceedings and said, when Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will make a decision on your case. So he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for him or visit him. So he's great. Paul's being shown great grace here. And after some days when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul. So he wants a private meeting now with Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. So Paul, he's getting a witness here to the governor. He's getting to talk to him about Jesus. Verse 25, now as he reasoned, Paul speaking about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid. That means he was convicted and answered, go away for now. And when I have a convenient time, I will call for you Meanwhile, he was also hoped that money would be given him by Paul that he might release him. So he's looking for a bribe. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. How amazing is this? This governor is like, you know, hey, bring Paul in today. I want to talk to him some more. And so they're talking about Jesus. I mean, think of it. It'd be like Newsom calling me. (laughs) Hey, can you come up? let's talk. I want to hear about Jesus. How amazing would that be? That's what's happening here. This is what Paul is getting to do as he's getting to share. Now here's the application for us in all of this. I cannot tell you what God is doing in your circumstances right now. And I don't know the future any more than you do, but I can tell you this. God is doing something in your circumstances. If you are going through a dark time right now, as Paul was, if you are discouraged, as Paul was, if you are weary with struggle because of what you're going through, the message of these chapters is this, stand on the promises of God. And continue to trust in God and serve him regardless of the circumstances. Because his promises are true and his purposes for you will be accomplished. So trust him. Trust him. Amen? Amen. But here's the thing we see. Number four. When we are standing on the promises of God, there will often be a delay in the promises coming to fulfillment. Look at verse 27, and we'll wrap this up. But after two years, everybody say two years. Festus succeeded Felix, and and Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. For two years passed by. But note this, God's delays are not God's denials. God's working here because God is setting the stage for Paul to speak to another governor and then after that King Agrippa and his wife we'll see that in chapters 25 and 26 next week. But again, here's the application for us today as we wrap this up and move to communion. We're told remember Paul said in 2 Corinthians 120, "For every one of God's promises is yes in him. That's in Jesus." Therefore, through him we also say amen to the glory of God. Every promise, all the promises, another translation says, how many is that? How many promises has God made to us? One Bible teacher counted up, went through the Bible, over 3,000. Over 3,000 promises, and and Paul's saying here, all the promises are yes and amen. I love that Joe played that song today, and he didn't even know what I was preaching on today. Isn't that cool? Means he's in the spirit. (laughs) All the promises of God are yes and amen. And listen, we need to follow Paul's example and be promise believers to grab a hold of the promises of God today. Now, we don't have time to go over 3,000, but I want to just really, really quickly give you 12. Just 12 that I'm just going to quickly go through. Promises that God made to us that are yes and amen in Christ. First of all, there's the promise of eternal life to everyone who believes. You put your faith in Jesus and it's like, you, you were on a road to hell and now you're on the road to heaven. Eternal life is yours. There's the promise of forgiveness of sins to those who confess. There's the promise of heaven waiting for us who follow Jesus. There's the promise of peace of mind for those who trust in him. We're told in Isaiah 26, there's the promise of direction. Anybody need direction today? He promises that. There's the promise of wisdom when we ask him for it. There's the promise that he will complete the good work that he has begun in us. Can I get a hallelujah on that one? That work he's begun on you, he promises to complete it. There's a promise for a future and a hope. There's a promise that he will take care of of our needs. There's the promise of his presence in deep waters. And there's the promise of his power in times of weakness. And there's the promise of his strength for those who wait on him. How do we know his promises can be trusted? Here's how. Jesus left heaven, came to this earth so he could go to the cross. And he died on the cross to pay the price for our sins. And then he rose again. Three days later, he's alive. And he's sitting at the right hand of God the Father today in heaven. And that means that we can bank on these promises today. We have the promise that he's coming back and we have the promise that the work he's begun in you, he's going to complete it.